Project A Podcast. Thank you for listening in and welcome everyone to another episode of the Project A Podcast. My name is Simon and I'm really glad that it's again my turn today to host our podcast. As you might know, I'm Project A's Chief Brand Officer and together with my team, we help our portfolio companies to launch, build and scale up their brands. And this is exactly what today's episode is all about. How to establish a resilient and promising brand market fit after having launched a new brand. This topic I'd like to discuss with Finn Hensel, who has an impressive and strong track record in building new brands and who's our guest for today's episode. Thank you very much, Finn, for joining me today. It's really great having you. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. Finn is the founder and managing director of the Sanity Group, a Berlin-based cannabis company. Besides that, he's as well managing director and co-founder of a local craft beer brewery called Berliner Berg, so Berliner Mountain in English, which successfully combines traditional German craftsmanship with the creative and innovative spirit of the Anglo-Saxon craft beer scene. Finn Hansel used to be CEO, board member and I think we can call it savior of Movinga, Europe's leading online moving service. Before that, Finn was managing director of Epic Companies, a company builder belonging to the Pro7 Sub1 Media Group. And before that, between 2011 and 2013, Finn lived in Sydney and was co-founder and managing director of The Iconic, Australia's biggest online fashion retailer. Backed by Rocket Internet, who's managing director for Australia and New Zealand, he was at this time too. So to cut a long Vita short, with this impressive track record, you, Finn, are the perfect dialogue partner to speak about branding in general and the brand market fit in particular. I'm very much looking forward to our talk today. There might be a few listeners out there who do not know the Sanity Group yet. Can you please tell them what the Sanity Group or tell us what the Sanity Group exactly is and what you are doing? Sure. Um, the Sanity Group, you mentioned it quickly, is basically a Berlin-based cannabis company. So that describes already what we're doing. Um, however, I mean, uh, I have a long history um, because I was politically active already uh, when I was young, um, ironically in the conserv conservative German party. However, I was already fighting for the legalization of medicinal cannabis. Uh, unfortunately, 2002, it was still very far away. In 2017, it was finally legalized. And because I had this attachment similar to my co-founder Fabian to cannabis as a medicinal plant, um, we really decided in 2018 that we both, I mean, being tech founders, normally building up online platforms, building up um, um, e-commerce stores, building up um, tech topics, that we really wanted to, to try something new and really combine our passion for entrepreneurship and building up companies with the growing market opportunities that we saw in a topic that's really close to our hearts, cannabis. And we founded the Sanity Group as an overall um, cannabis company that is focusing on many different aspects of the plant. So one of these aspects, for example, is the pure medicinal use. That's really you go to the doctor, the doctor prescribes you uh, medical cannabis, you take this prescription, you go to the pharmacy, and within the pharmacy, um, you get your flowers or extracts or other pharmaceuticals. And we do that under the brand Viamed. The second aspect that we saw is that there are more and more 
parts and ingredients of the cannabis plant that are non-psychoactive. Um, for example, THC is a psychoactive part, but there are also other uh, components called cannabinoids like CBD, CBN, CBG, CBC. And those also have, according to studies, very good benefits for sports people, but also for general anxiety or according to studies for general relaxation and, and even sleep. And that's the point when we realized Maybe it's not only a pharmaceutical, but it can also play a big role in the wellness world. People who actually have problems coming down in the evening and after work. And that's when we built up our second business unit, that's Sanity Care. And within Sanity Care, we decided that there are several brands necessary because we mentioned it in the beginning. You have a product market fit. However, um, cannabis is such a, such a general flower that has so many different positive impacts that we believe we cannot only cater to one size fits all, but we have to do separate brands for separate target groups that actually tell a believable and authentic story. And that's the reason why uh, we currently have three brands under the Sanity Group. One, as I mentioned, Viamid, purely pharmaceutical. And then you have two brands, Vi, which is our big consumer millennial brand, and this place, which is a functional cosmetic brand built on uh, based on cannabis. And that's just the beginning. Obviously, we have a strong pipeline. We don't want to create more brands, but we have a lot of different um, topics in the pipeline that that might be interesting going forward. But as I mentioned, our vision is really to exploit and unlock the full potential of the cannabis plant for human health. Thank you very much for introducing us to the uh, cannabis world and the Sanity Group. I think it's a very promising and interesting uh, venture. So just one question out of curiosity. We record this podcast remotely because due to COVID, uh, Germany has been locked down for more or less uh, the whole winter. And now uh, I'm just asking myself, how is the pandemic, how is uh, COVID and Corona affecting the cannabis industry? You know, it's uh, the good and the bad in one. Um, so there's one thing um, I see as a positive impact, and that's the fact that with all our brands, we are more focused on direct-to-consumer, at least the consumer brands, um, and less on retail. So we have some retail partnerships here and there. But obviously, a lot of more people are buying online these days. So obviously benefit from that somehow, because most of our brands are sold online. The second thing is that, especially in the pandemic, we see that a lot of people have problems sleeping, a lot of people have anxiety, and since CBD shows good results in studies regarding that, I strongly believe that the interest in all these ingredients that might be able to support you in these situations um, has peaked during that time. And we see that on Google Trends, we see that also in, in the interest in what we do. So I guess for the consumer part and the brands, it really let's put it like this, it really supported um, our growth. On the other hand, if you talk about uh, cannabis as a pharmaceutical, the pandemic had a lot of negative um, topics because especially as a pharmaceutical, you need to send your um, pharma consultants to the doctors, to the pharmacies to explain them how cannabis works because it's still a very new medication in the market. You basically have to work a lot with local authorities. You have to work with the BFARM, which is the National German Authority for Medicinal Products and Pharmaceuticals. And that became very, very slow during Corona. So most of the authorities, especially in the medical area, they have different priorities now. Um, obviously, the vaccination, but also other topics to basically fight the Corona pandemic. And also doctors don't like to be basically visited um, these days. 
um, to be educated about new pharmaceuticals because they're all focused, first of all, on um, on Corona, um, but secondly, also uh, because of the hygiene rules, it's not as easy as before to send people um, to educational workshops to basically tell them about what the plan can do, to tell them about new research studies. So that has been a bit slowed, I would say, in the effort. So at the end, uh, to make a long story short, medical was negatively impacted. Um, I would say that the our wellness sector was positively impacted. So at the end, I guess it balances each other out. Okay. So I think talking about the pandemic would be an episode on its own. And as I said Absolutely. at the very beginning, yeah, we are here to not to speak that much about the pandemic and how it affects uh, the different industry, but about branding. And uh, maybe this is the first question, and you already mentioned it, that uh, the, 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 the The brand strategy of the uh, Sanity Group is unlike most other startups and also unlike uh, Berliner Berg, the Sanity Group follows a multi-brand approach. So you already mentioned it, that you have various brands uh, for different products. So can you elaborate a little bit on that? So why did you choose this approach? Uh, where do you see the ad advantages of a multi-brand approach that maybe compensates for the higher costs that unavailably come with a multi-brand approach. Yeah. So you need, you know, at the end, um, I think what we do is kind of different from other typical startups. If, if I look back in my time and, and think about how I created brands in the past or how I created companies, the first question was always, which problem do you solve? Um, and based on the problem you solve, you create a brand that stands for solving that specific product, a problem. And um, when we started the Sanity Group, um, we suddenly realized that the plant is so versatile and so broad in the different indications it could help with that basically it's not solving just the one problem, it's solving different problems. And we also realized that it's solving different problems for different people. So the people it solves, let's say the sports problem that you have cramps and you have muscle problems after, after a sports session. It's not the same problem. It's not the same audience um, that, for example, has chronic pain and therefore needs pharmaceutical um, cannabis. And that's the reason where we realized mm, there is not this just one problem we solve. There are several problems um, that several different target groups have. And that was from our uh, point, a very decisive point in time when creating the company, because we realized one brand to cater all of the different problems cannabis might solve is not enough. So we actually looked into the market who is actually interested in cannabis, who is basically seeing a natural alternative in cannabis to their problems. Where does cannabis really help? What are the studies saying? So is it more um, pain problems? Is it more relaxation problems? Is it anti-inflammatory um, problems for sports people? And we realized at the end it was all of the above. And there's even like a huge base of research that says cannabis can help pets like animals. And that's the next big topic where we were wondering, like, ooh, can we do this all under one brand? And at the end, we decided we picked the three to four customer segments where we see the biggest impact. First of all, we see people having big problems, but also cannabis can be a good solution. And that's the reason why we decided we don't want to create a one size fits all brand, but we need to create separate brands for separate problems, um, focusing on separate target groups. And that was really something that was new to me as well, because that's more of how consumer good companies think when they create brands, they think about what 
uh, distribution way do I go? Um, what kind of like um, um, category am I playing in? What kind of partners do I work with? Um, what kind of target group do I have? And you see like a company like L'Oreal, they have like, I think 15 to 20 different brands, uh, Unilever, Procter & Gamble. And we kind of like looked a bit how they manage um, their portfolio. And um, we try to do the same with Sanity Group. However, and that's actually very important to me, it's not just plastic brands that you just build up um, in order to just give an impression to a customer, but we really want to build our brands authentic. And that's the reason why each brand uh, within Sanity Group has a dedicated team of uh, researchers, of marketers, um, because we really want not only be plastic brands that look separate from the outside, but are similar from the inside, but we really wanted to create brand identities that are authentic. I think that's kind of the balance that we try to keep um, building those brands. But it's basically something, as you said, it's very unusual for the startup scene because obviously um, it has also disadvantages um, attached to it. Yeah, I think what you just said, uh, based on that, it makes a lot of sense to really choose a combination, a promising combination of a problem that should be solved and a target audience. So, uh, and then choosing this combination and building a brand upon it. So if I counted correctly, you currently have four different brands under the umbrella of the Sanity Group or belonging to the Sanity Group. So how many promising combinations do you see or other, uh, let put me the, the, the question uh, differently. So how many uh, brands will you launch in the next years or is four already the, the, the end of the, of the story? Yeah, so it's it's a, it's a question that I don't have the final answer to. Um, so, for example, I just mentioned already one topic that is uh, very close to my heart because I see the direct impact, and that is, for example, CBD for animal health. Uh, and not only CBD, but also other parts of the cannabis plant. And um, that is something that um, a lot of studies show that, for example, if you have problems um, with, let's say, dogs who have like inflammatory problems, who have pain or who are strong nervousness. So you probably all know New Year's Eve is a horror for normally animals because all the rockets and, 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 and explosions outside at midnight or even before uh, that makes animals very nervous. And we know that CBD and other cannabis ingredients can have a positive impact here. So our question obviously is, how do we target that animal sector? Do we use one of our existing brands and just do a sub-brand, for example, Vi Pets? Um, or is it so far away from the reality of the current user that they would even be like confused if they're suddenly a pet brand um, from the same brand that they normally use to consume their um, product? That is a topic I think we haven't finally clarified. Um, I'm normally someone who likes to have as much things as possible under one brand or one umbrella brand. So um, as some people call it a branded house. So as I mentioned, however, the target groups are so different that we so far go for a house of brands approach. Um, there's the next thing, for example, we know that a lot of professional sports people, and there was just a very big article about the NFL yesterday, where almost 70% of all NFL players use cannabis for uh, fighting their pains and support muscle recovery. So that's a different topic again, like for these professional sports athletes, do we need a new brand or do we do it our, under our existing brand? So at the moment, 
my gut feeling, and I really have to say until now it's a gut feeling, is that we probably have the, the room of one or maximum two new brands. However, we always need to consider that it's a huge of effort, that's management attention. And as I said, we don't want to create plastic brands. We want to create authentic brands with real stories behind it, with real um, product development behind it. And at the end of the day, we are unfortunately not a consumer goods company who has the endless resources of uh, building up as many brands as we want. Um, and that's the reason why I think at the end, it's a fine line between the resources we have at hand, um, but the segments that are attractive. So at the end, to answer your question, I think it's one additional brand, definitely maybe two, but uh, but that's actually still up for discussion. Okay, sounds very interesting. So I, I think uh, unlike most other startups, by answering these questions, you really tackle the core of brand strategy and brand management. So, but you said at the very beginning, and we all know that the Sanity Group is not only follow, uh, following a multi-brand approach, but also a multi-channel approach. So, for example, the Way products, for instance, you can buy them at Douglas or you can buy them directly in the internet. So, uh, do you sell more products over retailers or do you sell more products directly to the consumer currently? So, it's uh, currently 90% online, direct-to-consumer. Um, that obviously also has to do a bit with the lockdown. So our retail partners or some of our retail partners, they are just not able to open right now. Um, however, I think even if everything is opened and we are at full speed also on retail, I think and that's actually my hypothesis. It will always be a 70-30 split um, to the benefit of online. So when we talked about additional brands, um, one thing that's also very interesting from a brand strategy perspective and you probably might know that from Project A, the same brands that perform well online don't necessarily also perform in the retail world. So one thing that we are um, considering right now, and I think it's not a secret, so I can tell it publicly. So the Vi brand, which is our hero brand right now, doing most of our revenues, um, you see it's a very um, specific design. So you have a lot of words on the front side of the products, um, you don't use a cannabis leaf uh, showing that it's a cannabis product. So basically, the customer needs to actually inform himself about the brand before he actually at the end decides to buy it. And in online, you can do it perfectly. You can tell stories. Uh, you can actually tell, give context on the website and everything. However, in retail, the customer passes an aisle and within half a second, he needs to decide if he thinks he wants the product or not. So what it means is in retail, you have to be much more specific and much more um, to the core in how you communicate and the customer really need to grab what it's about within a second. So um, at some point we decided that, of course, we still want to have Vi in retail where it's possible. And I think Douglas is a great partner because especially at a Douglas, you have uh, consultants in the store and they help you, they support you, they recommend you products. So I think Vi is very well placed there. But let's say in a supermarket or in a drugstore, um, the customer doesn't have the people who, who advise him on what to buy. He just goes and passes. And for example, that's when I meant maybe we have one or two more brands. What I sometimes think, may we focus with buy on the um, high advisory retail segments and direct to consumer. But maybe we launch a brand that is mostly focusing on retail which all has the attributes that I just mentioned. And maybe that's the right strategy going forward. And then I still think it will be 60-40 towards online, but it will probably be 90-10 for Vi. And then it would be 80-20 um, for, uh, for the new brand, 
80 being retail and 20% being online. Okay. Yeah, you said this is also something uh, we know that uh, when you have a direct-to-consumer brand, you have, let's say, an entire website to tell the brand story. On the other side, when you're dependent on retailers, you just have basically the packaging design to tell the whole story. This is definitely one of the, of the main differences. Do you see other significant differences as far as maybe brand strategy and brand management are concerned between direct-to-consumer brands on one hand and the classical B2C approach over retailers on the other hand? Yeah, I mean, definitely I would say that retail is more price sensitive. Um, obviously, it depends on which retail you're in. If you're on KDV Group or uh, on, on luxury um, um, department stores, obviously it's not similar to a Rewe or, or a normal retail store like a supermarket. However, I think at the end, you can definitely say that in retail, People are more price sensitive because you have much more impulse buyers who go, for example, to a drugstore and buy something that they might didn't want to buy in the beginning, but they see it, they find it interesting, they grab it, um, and that cannot be too expensive. While we see, for example, in direct-to-consumer, people really like, as you just mentioned, they read about it, they inform themselves, and they only go to the website if there's already an, interested, an interest in, in, in the product and the category. And that's the reason why I think um, one thing that um, is better for um, premium brands is very often direct to consumer and only selected uh, retail. But I think also a big difference is at the end um, that in retail, it's not only the price need to be lower, but also, and that now is the kind of like vicious circle you have, um, also your margins need to be better. Because at the end of the day, when you sell on the website, you have repeating customers, you have customer lifetime value, and you see that the customer is coming back to buy on your store and you can actually kind of manage your own margin that is higher than in retail. When you go into retail, you have to give 30 to 40, sometimes up to 50% to the retail partner. So the product don't doesn't only need to be cheaper in general because the customer wants it, but your margin also needs to be higher so you can afford to give a large proportion of that margin at the end to the retail partner. And that's the reason why I think the structure and the way how you think about marketing and the way how you think about return on investment in retail is, is significantly different from direct to consumer. And I think that's things you need to keep in mind. Another topic that goes more into finance area is working capital. So while on the website, you can basically produce a thousand products each week and then you reproduce when you sell out, a retail partner normally orders a huge amount and then basically sells it for five months. And then he orders again a huge amount. So your own revenues peak um, almost randomly. And you also have to have the money to produce everything in advance to then send it to the retail partner. And if a big drugstore with 4,000, 5,000 point of sales orders with you, you need to finance that order. And that's also obviously a very different thing in terms of how you manage a brand compared to direct-to-consumer. Yeah. I think the, the differences you just described remind me a little bit what we learned back then at university, where there was still this distinction between pull and push marketing. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I think what, 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 what we have learned in the last round about 20 minutes is that you're really passionate about brand and branding. And I think you're one of the just very few founders in Germany that really care about brand and brand building. So compared to the US, the UK, and I think also uh, compared to Australia, brand is not really a topic ranking high on a German founders priority list, I would say. Absolutely. So rather the opposite is, is the case. Most founders here in Germany, they are 
somewhat hesitant about brand and branding. Do you have an explanation for that? Maybe by comparing your experiences down under with the ones here in Germany? And to be honest, I, th I wouldn't only limit that to founders. I think Germany is generally a country um, where people don't give um, too much effort into branding. I mean, one thing, as I mentioned, I lived in Australia for almost four years. Even the restaurant scene, like every restaurant makes a lot of effort in the beginning before they start about the branding, about the positioning, about the design. Um, you have a few restaurants in Germany, too. Um, ironically, they are very often uh, managed by, by Anglo-Saxon people and not by, not by German people. But there must be something in the German DNA that, that thinks branding is not important. However, the reason why I think um, as a founder I'm so much into branding is because I believe that you as a brand or as a company, you need to create a relationship with your customer. And the relationship means you have to build a community, you have to build fans, you have to build like sustainable returning customers who come back to your brand, not only because they like the product, but they also ident identify with themselves as uh, with the brand. And at the end, somehow, and I know it's, it's a bit maybe far-fetched, but they're almost proud to use the brand. And I think <clears throat> if you start a startup from the beginning and it's just about revenues, you don't think about this long-term effect. You just think about how can I actually bring a lot of customers on my, on my platform in the short run. And then the branding is more or less an afterthought. And one example that I had, um, Zalando, um, I don't know if you remember how Zalando looked like in the beginning, but it looked a very like a very transactional almost marketplace and there was not much fashion in the dna of of zalando it was more or less it looked like an amazon for fashion which is ironic because people who look for fashion normally look for style they look for certain certain brands um however the platform that the brands were offered on didn't look that stylish so if you look at the iconic in australia the difference was from the beginning that we created also a strong brand with the iconic. We used the very significant black and white um, typology that normally fashion brands are using. We use big statement fonts. And I think that also was one reason why we've been so successful in Australia, because in Australia, people appreciate branding. And um, I think in Germany, we can learn much more from especially Anglo-Saxon countries um, like Australia, the US, uh, the UK, New Zealand, even South Africa, um, I don't know why, but somehow it's it's obviously not in our DNA, but I think it's changing because people more and more realize that customers at the end appreciate good brand. It's just the brand creators that are sometimes missing in, in, in our country. Yeah, you said, and, and I think uh, I couldn't agree more, that it's not only the founders here in Germany that are rather hesitant when it comes to branding, but also other involved stakeholders in the whole uh, startup scene, such as investors. Now we read a lot about uh, that, especially for scale-up uh, companies, a lot of the investors coming outside from the outside of Germany, from abroad, especially the US and the UK. And do you think that this development will somehow change uh, the, the, know, the necessity or the, the importance of branding in the German startup scene? Do you so hope I, for that? I hope for that. I mean, obviously... It's, it's a mixed feeling, right? So on the one hand, I hope for it. On the other hand, uh, I'm a bit concerned if too, more, too, too many cool brands are coming now to the market, we don't have a strong USB anymore. <laughs> but, but it's actually funny that you say that because, uh, I mean, we, we, we recently raised a small financing round and we talked with our existing investors um, about which funds um, internationally for us would be relevant. 
and I will not give names, but one of our funds said like, oh yeah, you can talk to this fund from France because you have cool brands. And what they don't like in Germany is that almost none of the companies have cool brands. And that's the reason why they very often don't invest in Germany. And I thought that is something that I've never heard before, um, that there's actually investors from foreign countries like France or even from the US who say if the brand is not good, um, we don't invest. Um, because they believe in the same sustainability in a long-term relationship with a customer than I do. And maybe, and hoping that really this will also affect branding in general in Germany, uh, the fact that more and more investors coming from the US or also other countries, that might change the mind of the, invest, uh, of the founders a bit saying like, we need to create good brands um, in order to also be attractive for those investors. However, one more afterthought here. Then the question is, I think, Unfortunately, many founders don't even have a good idea what a good branding and a negative uh, and a bad branding is. So I think we not only have to put brands um, as a higher priority, but we should probably educate people much better of how a good brand is created. And I think that knowledge sometimes is not even there. So sometimes founders cannot even differentiate between a good brand and a non-good brand um, because they don't develop that sensitivity over time which I think, again, is somehow in the German DNA, but that's just my personal opinion. Okay, but if we do a good job, people like you and me, then there is still hope for people that are exactly. passionate about branding and about ventures. That's exactly. good news. So according to our own experiences here at Project A, uh, there are a lot of start startups uh, that avoid investing in branding and brand communication until they reach the point where spending more money in performance marketing doesn't necessarily bring more leads. So this is then the point when they say, okay, now we have to start thinking about our brand. So there are people like me who argue that this is usually way too late. So what is your take on that? Maybe uh, based on your own experience, at what stage should startups ideally start thinking about their brand and start to invest in it? So you think there's uh, there is no black and white. Um, I know that this is what you just told me. I mean, the iconic was a was a daughter company of Rocket Internet. And to be honest, if I would have listened fully to Rocket Internet, they would have said in the beginning, forget about the brand, just spend your money on online. <clears throat> However, I strongly believe that it's not either or, because if you create a good brand, at some point also not only repurchase rates will go up, but also the conversion rate will go up because people at the end like more to shop at the brand um, that they like than they shop at the brand that they don't like. And especially when it's all those attributes you need, like trust, like believing that the quality is good, like uh, complex services or, or products, then the brand is even more important because no one would buy a 2,000 euros. Movinga was a good example. No one wants to buy a 2,000 euros um, moving service when they don't trust the brand. And that's the reason why I always said it's not either or. You should think both from the beginning. And what I don't like, as I said, there's no black and white. When some extreme founders um, talk to agencies and the agencies say like, ah, oh, forget online marketing, just do brand marketing. That's that I also don't believe in. So at the iconic, there is a slide that is still shared sometimes in the German startup scene, which showed our approach. And we basically said in the beginning, 70% performance, 30% brand, but from day one. So really invest also in the brand, invest in PR, because one thing is, um, especially also in terms of PR and having a good brand, having a good brand normally gives you a lot of organic feedback that you don't need to pay for. And let me just give you one example of how to combine brand and performance. 
So if you create a new company from scratch that you didn't create a good brand for, no one has ever heard of it, and you do online marketing, people sometimes start then to Google your brand and see what also is in the net, in the internet about your brand. And if they don't find anything, um, they might check out your website, but at the end, they don't have the trust to buy something. If we create a cool brand that already gets organic reach that influencers talk about, that the press talks about, suddenly people Google your brand and they see also press articles about it. They see reviews. They see influencers who like the brand. They see other people who say like, oh, wow, look at this cool brand. And when they see all this noise, positive noise around the brand, they are much more willing to actually go to the website and purchase something. And I think this is not only many, this is not potential or this is not solely manageable with performance marketing this is something that i think is healthy from day one and that's the reason why the 70 30 um spent um allocation has been my best practice and i never changed it since the iconic times because i always saw that there's a benefit in brand however and i don't want to talk too long now but it also obviously depends on the product if you have a small transactional product for two euros that is commoditized obviously you don't need to spend that much money on a brand compared um, to more complex products where it's all about trust. But Apple is a great example. Weber barbecue systems are a great example. We're suddenly creating a brand in a market made a huge difference um, um, to the way how customers perceive the brand and how loyal they are. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the most promising way is really to do both brand marketing as well as performance marketing and to be brand conscious from the very beginning. So we at Project A, often at the beginning of a startup's journey, we define together with the venture what is called a, so, a minimal viable brand. So in order to check then if the brand fits uh, not only the product, but of course as well the market, the so-called brand market fit. So do you follow a similar approach at the Sanity Group when launching a new brand? And if so, what do you usually define before you launch the product and what do you add or change afterwards? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good example because uh, I, uh, I uh, from the car industry, I, I, I have the experience that it's a very big difference if the company is engineer driven or if it's um, customer driven. And a lot of times you see um, German car makers are more engineer driven. So sometimes they create big engineering innovations, but at the end, you don't have the customers for it. And while Tesla, for example, is a good example that comes from the customer, the user experience first, and then brings it back into the car. So I really like the Tesla way more. And that's the reason why, for example, uh, very often our product developers at um, Sanity Group say like, oh, we have a new innovation. Let's launch this product. But um, while I agree with them, sometimes there's great innovations. We always go the other way around. So for a new brand we create, we first of all think about what's the why. and this is. A, bit of, I think, uh, five years ago, it was unheard of. Uh, now, I think it's it's common sense, at least for the people that like branding. But you don't start with the what and the how, but you rather start with the why. So why would someone use that brand? Why would you need that brand? And what's the problem in the market? And that's obviously what we do. First, we think about uh, what are the customers that um, that we think should buy the brand? What problem are we solving for these customers? So in other words, why we are doing it? And then in the second step, we decide, okay, how do we target those customers? How do we um, communicate to them that we solve their problem? How do we explain the problem? How do we explain the solution? And that's obviously what we do before we start a new brand. And then we only launch products within the brand 
that fit into that brand vision. So as I mentioned, so if Vi is the millennial brand for people from 20 to 40 who have tough jobs and live in big cities, um, I would not necessarily um, launch a pet product in that brand because maybe it doesn't fit because a lot of pet owners are living in rural areas. They are um, on average a bit older and they have every different problems. So under the same brand, it wouldn't make sense. So again, from a, for a pet brand, we would start with a why, with a who, and then actually go to the what and how. Um, but similar to what you say at, at Project A with the minimum viable brand, I think that's the right. And to be honest, by now, almost the only way how to do it when you really want to create a sustainably successful brand. Yeah, so I think that it's, it's, it's uh, I couldn't agree more. It's not only about the product market fit, but it's about the brand product market fit. Exactly. Maybe it makes sense to, to start with a brand and then coming up with products that really fulfill the brand's promise and uh, come true to the brand. So we mentioned another point earlier already in this podcast, and uh, you said that it's not only founders, but also investors, they strongly believe that only what can be measured can be managed at the end of the day. So they always want to know, so the investors, uh, what is really the return on their investment. So we all know that when it comes to branding, this is not that easy it's rather complicated so in general how do you check if a brand fits its market and how do you measure your brand success what metrics do you use so i mean obviously we all know the typical performance kpis of like cac and customer acquisition cost however that's not necessarily how i measure the brand however there's one thing i think is true i think the conversion rate on a website still tells you something about the brand market fit. So we know, for example, that direct competitors of ours um, that have a different branding approach than we have, um, they have similar products um, or a similar choice. However, we know that their conversion rate, for example, on the website is much lower. So that is what I explained. So that actually sub tells you something that, that you're right about the way how you communicate the brand. The second thing, and that's very close to my heart, obviously, it's measuring the NPS, the net promoter score. So are the people not only happy with using the product, but we ask them three times. We ask them, are you happy with the website? Are you happy with the, with the, with the speed that the product arrived at your house? And are you, uh, are you happy with the product performance? So I think this brand or this happiness also tells you something about the brand. And then thirdly, and we don't do that that often, but that is something we do, I think, up to three, between three and six months. We actually use a, a digital um, um, market research tool where we ask like how customers perceive, for example, why uh, compared to direct competitors within and outside the cannabis space um, and, and what the attributes are that they, that they give why and uh, what we call at the end the love score. So certain attributes are more functional, other attributes are more emotional. And out of these different attributes, we, we create something that we call the love score and see how much is our product or our, our brand loved compared to the others. And that is something, obviously, that we then also show investors saying, like, look, we might not be the biggest brand in the market yet in that segment, but we are definitely the most loved brand by our users. So it means the more users we generate that also love our product, the bigger the word of mouth will be also in, in combination with the NPS. And that's the reason why in the long run, we will definitely sustainably have an advantage and we will outperform the others. And, and that is something that I think 
are not as tough as now CAC and CPO and customer lifetime value and how does it rank per channel. Obviously, it's not that straightforward, but I think more and more investors, as you mentioned, are seeing value in that. And I think uh, we make as much um, uh, potential or we lift as much potential as possible by measuring those uh, more slightly soft KPIs on, on the brand side. Okay, very interesting. So, and do you bring these different metrics together? So you said you, you're measuring, of course, the conversion rate, you do have the net promoter score, then you do have more classical brand metrics, recognition, uh, and what you just said about the love score. And do you have, at the end of the day, a model that brings these different sources and these different, let's call them KPIs together in one, let's say, secret sourcing model? So it's an interesting question. So to be honest, I would love to do that. And I thought about it quite often to really create like a brand sustainability score based on NPS, conversion rate, and all the factors I just mentioned. At some point, I was considering if it's not a the too theoretical approach. Like there was one uh, guy once telling me, you know, um, the weather forecast in 1990, uh, 1998 um, consisted of, uh, of 200 variables. The weather forecast in 2021 consists of 5 billion variables. Um, however, the weather forecast has not been more um, uh, has not become more um, reliable than 30 years ago. So, what he basically wanted to to tell me with that is only because you have more variables playing into a big system, it doesn't make the system better. And that's the reason why sometimes I'm considering hmm, there are so many factors influencing those KPIs again. For example, the conversion rate. If we are sold out on a product, which sometimes unfortunately happens, our conversion rate drops immediately. So if you then try to combine those different KPIs into one new KPI, I think there are too many influencing factors to really um, get a, a, a clear answer from that. But I like the thinking behind that. And maybe at some point we will come up with something um, that we then show. But uh, we haven't done it yet uh, out of the reasons I just mentioned, but I still like the idea very much. Yeah, I think this is a big challenge. So, of course, I couldn't agree more that too many KPIs, too many metrics can become just confusing. So there is one big challenge is focusing on the right ones. And then the other challenge is to bring them uh, somehow together in order to, to predict what will happen in the ideal yeah. world. Okay. And the problem this... is, one more addition, the problem I think is also that... Um, at the end, you will create that to benchmark you against others, right? And the problem is because I might have a score, let's say, of 43 at the end, but uh, who tells me that 43 is a good or a bad score? And uh, you, the score is only helping you when you can benchmark yourself in, against other companies. But you don't know the conversion rate of other companies. You don't know the NPS of other companies. So obviously, you can ask the customers how happy were you with them, and you can actually see based on market rumors of how their conversion rate looks like. But at the end of the day, um, you don't have the first-hand information about your competitors. So it's really hard to put you into perspective in that kind of um, segment as well. So um, that's also, I think, one of the downsides that you might have a number at the end, but you are not really able to interpret the number since you don't have comparisons. Okay. Unfortunately, we are already almost at the end of today's podcast episode, and I do have a completely different question that has nothing to do with brand intelligence or brand metrics. So, but last year, the Sanity Group, you did the second closing of your Series A. 
and we read in the newspapers that you could win some well-known people as investors. So, for example, yeah. Mario Götze, then Klaas Häufel Umlauf, the famous TV host, Stefanie Giesinger, the model, and last but definitely not least, the American rapper, and uh, I think he's a music producer as well, William. So, hey, to be honest, Finn, did you do it because of the money they invested, or was it more kind of a PR stand? And how important are such stunts to make a brand famous? So I can I can tell you I mean that goes back to my to the whole thing about my philosophy about brands um, that I believe this is not obviously the only but this one piece of the puzzle to make brands um, um, interesting for people. However, I mean uh, I can tell you as much they gave money, so it's not that we gave them for free shares and, and now they attach themselves to the brand. That's not the case. So obviously we also got money out of that. As you can imagine, compared to what a big VC would give, it's not the biggest amount of money. However, um, one thing that um, is important for us, that we didn't want to use these guys just for one PR stunt and say like, oh, cool, we can do one press release and that's it. With all of those people you just mentioned, we now have follow-up projects. So, for example, Will I Am is, uh, as you know, he's the founder of the Black Eyed Peas. And that's also the reason why he is the host of The Voice in the UK. So he basically is creating a product together with us, who is actually, um, 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 which is catering to his needs. And it's very interesting because he has like a lot of uh, needs and desires, which in his normal daily life um, he is missing. And we tried to cater a product just for him. And believe it or not, he is really active in the product development himself. So he sends us samples, he sends us products he likes, he sends us ingredients that help him. Um, and we try to bring it into a new product and that he will then also like put his face on. Um, so it's not only just investing and having a PR stunt, but it's really also finding people who are really behind the brand. With Steffi Giesinger, um, I cannot tell you too much, but there's also something coming up over the next weeks with our football players. Um, we are actually currently the professional sports range. I mentioned already that um, CBD can really help um, in the sports area for recovery and, and pain. So we will do something around that. And that's the reason, and with class, we have a different idea of what we might be able to do. So it's not only for announcing it once and saying, hey, cool, it's in build and it's in Hans's blood that we have celebrity investors, but it's really also about giving uh, in English, you sometimes say you give legs to something. So we want to give legs to that engagement and really think about how can we use these guys going forward to be really believable brand ambassadors. Because the, the reason why we picked those guys is because they believe in CBD as an ingredient and they use it themselves. And that's the reason why they're perfect for us to actually create new things together with them. And I think that's uh, that's the secret sauce, if you want to put it like this, because many others just use the celebrity investors for one PR stunt. And then they're basically, I don't want to take too negatively, but they're dead weight on the cat table. And we want to become them active, um, active collaborators with us. Seems to be like a win-win-win situation, kind of a silver bullet. You get not only the money, you get as well the fame and the, the insights, the collaboration. Fingers so, crossed, thank you. I get it one year. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Finn, for having been our guest today on the Project A podcast. Thank you very much for a really interesting talk. And thank you out there for listening in. We hope you liked today's episode of the Project A podcast. And if so, please subscribe to our podcast, because every second week we get in the founder's shoes and we speak about the things that really matters when starting and scaling up a wedge. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating.
Thanks, guys.